Hello, and welcome to The Staffing Show, the only podcast that delivers tools, tips, and tactics from the staffing and recruiting industry's top executives and thought leaders. This episode is brought to you by Staffing Referrals, the only automated referral management platform chosen by smart staffing firms. Tired of wasting money on traditional job boards? Sick of reminding recruiters about promoting your referral program? Wish you could eliminate admin work spent tracking referrals and scheduling interviews? That's where Staffing Referrals comes in. Imagine transforming your entire talent pool into digital recruiters on behalf of your company. Think about how happy you'll make your team by eliminating wasted time spent tracking referrals and scheduling interviews. There's a reason that Staffing Referrals is one of the fastest-growing software platforms in our industry. It's because staffing executives want to scale faster by automating recruiting processes. It's because with Staffing Referrals, you can actually see an ROI. And it's because our world is now more digital than ever, and your candidates expect you to keep up. Don't get passed by the competition. Stop missing referrals and start recruiting smarter. Get staffing referrals and improve your tech stack today. To claim one free month, visit www.staffingreferrals.com slash show. That's staffingreferrals.com slash show. So David Falwell and I are here with Jake Woods today. Jake Woods is the CEO of Team Rubicon, a global nonprofit he co-founded in 2010. Team Rubicon serves communities by mobilizing veterans to continue their service, leveraging their skills and experience to help people prepare, respond, and recover from disasters and humanitarian crises. Additionally, Wood writes and speaks frequently on topics of leadership, organizational culture, and social issues. He's a sought-after media voice and has appeared on every major network and cable news program. His most recent book, Once a Warrior, How One Veteran Found a New Mission Closer to Home comes out next month and has already received wide acclaim. Simon Sinek said it will inspire you to want to be a better human. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jake. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to join. Just to kick it off, you and Dave go way back. Can you guys talk a little bit about how you know each other? Yeah, we do. We should have come to an agreement about all the stories that we wouldn't tell before we kicked this (laughs) off. That's actually why I joined. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we could ruin one another's future political careers in a heartbeat. David and I, we kind of grew up together. I think I moved to what we would call our hometown of Bettendorf, Iowa, right before the sixth grade. And we spent a year in elementary school together and then played sports together all through high school. And yeah, I had the pleasure of playing offensive line on the football team where David was the running back and had the honor of blocking for him in many a game, (laughs) which was always fun. Which was also amazing. I will say that my junior year of football was pretty great when Jake was not injured. And then once Jake (laughs) was injured, I will say that my running back skills maybe weren't as strong as Jake's blocking skills. So, (laughs) So. And we've been friends ever since. David and I are both entrepreneurs and I think that's been a thread that's kept us tied together in decades since we last laced up our cleats together. It's fun to join one of his many ventures here on this podcast. Thank you so much for joining. I'll see if I can draw out any of those stories that you guys don't want to tell. (laughs) And since we're talking about origin stories, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to start Team Rubicon? Sure. 
the story of starting Team Rubicon starts kind of long before Team Rubicon. So after high school, I had the opportunity to go to the University of Wisconsin to play football. And while I was there, the attacks of 9-11 happened. That happened during my freshman year. Obviously, the world changed in that moment. And one of the ways that it changed was, of course, that the U.S. first, you know, in 2001, went to war in Afghanistan. And then about a year and a half later, we followed and went to war in Iraq. And it was interesting to be on a college campus as that was unfolding. And when my time in Madison came to an end, you know, I was kind of faced with this decision. I ultimately made the choice to join the Marine Corps. My football career hadn't quite panned out like I thought it would. So when people asked me how I ended up in the Marine Corps, I said, well, I didn't end up in the NFL. In fact, I wasn't even close. And so I joined the Marine Corps and I served in the Marines from 2005 to 2009. I was in the infantry. I did a tour to Iraq in 07 and Afghanistan in 08. And in late 09, I decided that I wanted to get out of the Marine Corps and move on to the next chapter of my life. And so I'd been out of the Marines for one or two months and was sitting in my apartment in Los Angeles when the news of the Haiti earthquake broke. And when I was watching that situation unfold, I felt compelled to do something to help in some way. And I called one of the organizations that I saw was mobilizing down in Haiti. And I called and, you know, after a dozen rings, a nice old woman answered the phone and I said, you know, hi, you know, my name's Jake. I just got out of the Marine Corps. I'm an expert at leading small teams in really bad situations. I'd love to help you with operations in Port-au-Prince. And she said, you know, thanks, but no thanks. Why don't you just hang up and text us $10? And (laughs) it didn't seem like that was the best way for me to help. And so after hanging up the phone, I ended up working to organize a team of veterans that I'd served with and doctors. And we got down to Port-au-Prince a few days later and began really conducting relief efforts. And that was when the idea of Team Rubicon started, this idea of recruiting men and women who've served in the military to repurpose the skill and experience that they gained through that service in a new mission, which for us was humanitarian relief and disaster relief. And we've been at it for almost 11 years now. And the success has been really amazing to see. I think that there was a logical tie between that military service and this you found disaster service that has really enabled that scale. You guys have helped all over the world. And recently you found more cause, I think, to bring your services here in the United States. Can you talk a little bit about working with COVID right now? Yeah. Over the last decade, the organization scaled a lot. We started with eight volunteers in Haiti. We've now had over 130,000 Americans register as volunteers throughout the U.S. And we've run nearly 700 missions, both around the world, but many of them in the U.S. And when COVID began kind of racing around the globe, we were preparing for worst case scenarios. You know, we didn't sit back and wait for it to happen. We were very, very proactive as this thing was racing through China. We took a posture that really looked at the worst case scenario. And so we weren't caught flat footed. That being said, you know, there was no playbook for this. And we certainly didn't have one, even as a disaster response organization, even as an organization that had responded to infectious disease outbreaks before. We didn't have a playbook for this, but that didn't stop us. We moved very aggressively to get our organization into the fight against COVID early. That ranged from taking our medical teams and repositioning them here for domestic work. And that took the form of at one point when it looked like San Francisco was going to be as bad an epicenter as New York City, we worked with HHS to set up a 250-bed hospital in Santa Clara. 
it ultimately ended up that that wasn't needed. And we ended up shutting that hospital down after seeing only a few dozen patients. Then we redirected that effort into the Navajo Nation, which is you know in the four corners of Arizona, Utah, New Mexico, and Colorado. And this is one of the most marginalized populations in America. At one point, a few months into the pandemic, it had the highest disease rates for COVID of anywhere in the U.S., but it's also got probably the most fragile healthcare system in the U.S. And so we've moved 100 medical providers into Navajo Nation, decompressed their medical system, decompressed their ambulance system, and treated nearly 3,000 COVID patients during that time over the span of about 120 days. So there was the medical work on one side. And then, you know, on the kind of the spectrum of work, we've been running mobile testing sites. We've been still responding to hurricanes, floods, and fires during this pandemic. But then also, you know, we pivoted into helping food support partners like Feeding America and Meals on Wheels. We've put nearly 10,000 of our volunteers into food banks this year, packaged over 40 million pounds of food, driven over 100,000 miles in last mile logistics deliveries for individual homeowners. And so it's been a pretty crazy year, certainly not one that we expected, but we relied on a couple of philosophies that we always hold near and dear, you know, one being that hope is not a strategy. And, you know, early in this, you saw a lot of organizations, you even saw like our nation kind of rely on this strategy of, hey, we hope it's not that bad. Well, guess what? Mm -hmm. This was bad. Hope isn't a plan, Mm -hmm. right? So you better have a plan and treat hope like a tactic. And that's Mm -hmm. what we've done. It's interesting listening to you. Like I talk to a lot of leaders who are about leading through crisis. And that means something very different for the majority of our listeners, I think, than it means for you in these extreme circumstances, like in the very heart of what's going on for us and in so many other disasters. But you were a speaker at Staffing Up Live. You're so good at taking these lessons from these intense circumstances and making them applicable to leaders that are facing a different kind of maybe more everyday crisis. I'm wondering what you learned about working in COVID right now, especially in terms of growing your organization, in terms of staffing. What have you learned? What advice can you offer the leaders listening here? Well, a lot. (laughs) I mean, I think that the one thing, and I think David can relate to this as an entrepreneur, As a business leader, you never want the moment of crisis that will inevitably come to your company to be the first time that you've ever faced crisis. You know, your team is counting on you. You owe it to them to have muscle memory when it comes to, you know, these moments of chaos, right? As an entrepreneur, David, you know, and I, like we can relate, like the crisis is around every corner when you're building a business, right, David? Absolutely. Every minute. Yeah. Making payroll, whatever it is, right? Lawsuit. You know, I think one of the things that we were fortunate to have was this depth of experience in managing chaos, managing crises, where kind of cooler heads were able to prevail. We were able to move deliberately into this environment and make smart tactical decisions. Part of that was adjusting our full year plan, which, you know, we came into 2020 thinking we were going to do all these amazing things. And of course, by March, that plan's out the window. So now we have to completely readjust that plan. Part of that was kind of embracing the brutal reality of the situation. So again, not just closing our eyes and hoping that things weren't going to be that bad, but saying, okay, if this is as bad as they say, here are all the second and third order impacts of that to where we think we're going this year. And so then here are all the contingencies that we have to develop. And then just as those assumptions start playing out, some prove to be true, some prove to be false. You have to continue to adjust that plan. 
one of the things that we did was we believed early that we were going to be able to pivot into this fight against COVID and begin generating impact in helping these communities with it. We knew that we were going to be able to convince some of our long-term strategic partners to fund that effort. Both those assumptions proved true, which meant that we had to execute against a pretty aggressive hiring plan. We'd never hired people in a pandemic before. We have a very office-centric culture. Some companies had kind of this luxury where they had always been remote. Yeah, I'm looking at David chuckle right now. We're on the other side of that from day one remote. We were kind of ready to go. <laughs> exactly. So there was no culture shock. There was no adjustment to that new normal. Whereas, you know, we had nearly 175 full-time employees, 75% of them working out of one of our three major offices. And suddenly they're going home. They're having to figure out, you know, we're having bandwidth issues. They're screaming kids in the background. This is just a new normal for us that we're having to adjust to. And then on top of that, we were saying, okay, and we're going to hire 75 new full-time people in this environment. We're going to have to retool our onboarding program to accommodate for that. We're going to have to figure out how to integrate them culturally when our culture, again, is very much an in-person culture. So now how do we adjust that to make sure that we're warmly bringing them into that culture? And then that culture is now set up to guide people to success in a remote environment. We also, as we were rapidly expanding these programs that had never existed before, like I mentioned earlier, you know, support to Feeding America and some of these food programs. We deployed 10,000 people into those food banks this year. We had no infrastructure for that. And we also didn't know how long they were going to persist. You know, we didn't know if this pandemic was going to last three months or three years. Mm-hmm. We didn't know how long the food insecurity issue was going to last, but we knew that it was urgent. And so we ended up working through a leased employee program where we, you know, we worked with an agency that were hiring our volunteers who had recently become unemployed due to the pandemic. And then we were leasing them back as kind of flex capacity into this program to help manage it and provide sustainability and consistency. So, you know, we had to retool a lot of our human capital, not just kind of the number of people that we were employing, but really the methods that we were employing them through. And I'll say this last thing, we went work from home really early. And of course, not all of our people can go work from home. We have some jobs that by the nature of the work that we do are literally on the front lines of these disasters. One example is we were on a rebuilding program where we rebuild homes damaged by disasters. And it's headquartered in Houston, you know, which was hit by Hurricane Harvey three years ago. So we've got 15 or 20 full-time staff in Houston that run this program. And you can't build a house from home. And so these people, there was no physical way to do their job. And one of the things we said early to them was, your job is safe. doesn't matter how long you can't do whatever it is we hired you to do. You will not lose your job because of that. We're going to find a way for you to continue to work here. We're going to change your job description in the interim. We're going to give you job security because the last thing you need to do with everything going on in the world, all the anxiety producing elements in the world around you, you should not have to worry about that. So in March, we looked them in the eye virtually, of course, over Zoom, and we said, it doesn't matter how long this lasts, there's a job for you here. So, you know, I think creating that culture of safety for your people was also really, really important in this. Jake, one thing when you talk about kind of the least employee route and like what you did with COVID, obviously you were kind of doing what, you know, in the staffing industry is known as building out a contingent workforce, on-demand workforce. But if you look back on historically, I mean, you've kind of built a contingent nonprofit workforce for Team Rubicon. I mean, you have hundreds of thousands of volunteers. I don't know what the number's at now, but I know every time I look at the count, I'm blown away by how you've scaled it. 
And I think that's something that when I think about our listeners, like a lot of the staffing firms that are doing that for their clients, they're looking at how do we help them scale on demand when they need it. And I'm just curious if you can share what you've learned through that process or any challenges that you had that you wish somebody had solved ahead of you. It's a good point. You know, what we've built at our core is disaster response on demand. So yeah, when you think about what we do, we take people who've never met one another, deploy them to a town or a community they've never been to and assemble them in a team and say, hey, go achieve all these impossible objectives in the aftermath of a disaster, right? So (laughs) it's kind of like the most extreme level of team building you can imagine. We've learned a lot about that. One, culture is king. Like You can't do that unless you have a positive culture that can assimilate those people. And when we think about culture at Team Rubicon, given the ambiguous situation we'll deploy into, what culture does for us and what I ultimately think it should be able to do for any organization is guide decisions in the absence of orders. When people don't have an explicit directive or understanding of what to do, culture guides them consistently to the right decision, the right behavior. And so that's really, really important. And so you have to have a strong culture. If you're going to be bringing people in and out of a job or a team, there needs to be a culture that kind of serves as guardrails that brings them to the right actions and activities. You know, second, training is important. I don't think companies invest enough in training. And it's because it takes time. It takes investment. Done well, it takes really, really smart people. Like you need instructional designers. You need to invest in the IT side of it. You know, we've invested heavily in training. We call it tools, tactics, and techniques. You know, if people have those and they have a culture, they're probably going to be okay. Beyond that, we're doing some really cool stuff where we're actually building out artificial intelligence tools that will help us to assemble the right teams based off of the skill sets, backgrounds, and experience. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, we've partnered up with Microsoft on that. And I imagine some of the people that are listening here, you probably have enough data and you probably have enough volume with the people that you're building out these contingent workforces with that you should be able, you know, if a client comes to you and says, hey, we need 15 people to accomplish X, you probably have enough data to say, well, here's the exact skill sets that you need. Here's the right mix of demography in order to make a successful team that's going to have impact. That's awesome. You mentioned how culture is king and a little bit about creating this sense of baseline trust by really reaching out at the beginning of the pandemic and saying, you're with us no matter what. Can you think of any other ways that you fostered culture or created the strong culture that you're known for at Team Rubicon remotely? Yeah, well, we've tried to do a couple things. Again, our culture was very much an in-person, office-centric culture. And I think we've done our best to maximize face-to-face interaction. So we leverage the tools everybody now has available. They're ubiquitous. You know, the Zoom meetings, we use Microsoft Teams and stuff like that. We have multiple all-hands calls throughout the week. We make sure that people have their cameras on. You see a lot of people now, you get into meetings, people try to turn their camera off and hide from the camera. We're really encouraging people, no, turn the camera on. If that means you have to wake up 30 minutes early and shower, so be it. You'd be doing it anyway if you're going into the office, right? And that just reminds people who they're meeting with. We think it increases creativity and collaboration to do that. I have my assistant scheduling 30-minute blocks with me randomly throughout the week with new hires. I mean, one of the amazing things is we've hired 75 new full-time staff this year. Frankly, it's hard to even remember who they are because I've met them maybe three times. You know, once when we interviewed them, once when I onboarded them, and maybe I've had one other interaction with them. Whereas if I was in the office, 
I'd be passing that person's desk 10 times a day on my way to the coffee maker. And so you have to forcibly recreate those interactions in order to really integrate those folks into the group. And what type of steps are you taking on the onboarding process? That's one of the things that even talking to staffing firms themselves with the virtual onboarding, everybody's got a different approach. But I mean, I know you said you have Zoom, you're trying to have their ongoing meetings, but are there the tools specific to training? Anything that you said you're in the Microsoft side of things, but are there anything specific tools have been super helpful throughout this period? You know, I think... For us, one of the things that we wanted to do was tie people to the organization physically because everything was virtual. And so I think one of the most important things we did was we started shipping kind of like welcome to TR boxes to folks that they'd get well in advance of their first day. You know, they'd show up to work on their first day. They log into an all hands meeting and all the Team Rubicon people, 200 people are all wearing Team Rubicon shirts and they have theirs that they can put on for the first time. And these other just kind of tchotchkes that we'd send them, it just kind of creates this physical connection to the organization. And that's what people are really yearning for now. I mean, you know, this human nature to want to be physically connected to other people. So we really tried to create some element of that. We have digital happy hours at the end of the week that welcome them onto the team. I mean, honestly, none of these things are extraordinarily brilliant or scientific. It's just really trying to recreate the magic of what an office environment is, which is social interaction. And I imagine they're somewhat organic too. The solutions grow out of the culture that you've already built too. Absolutely. So I wanted to zoom out a little bit and come back to your book. And I wanted to dig specifically into a little bit more praise that you've gotten for your book because I think it's a really good framework for a larger conversation about what's going on in the world right now. So Tom Brokaw said, Once a Warrior is the book that America needs right now. Jake Wood's life-changing experience is a reminder of the greatness of the American spirit and how now more than ever, we need to activate that spirit for the common good. And so right now, the country is fractured in a lot of ways and struggling. And I think what we've been seeing is uh, often a failure to come together for that common good. And so I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to our listeners about how to activate that spirit of common good for their communities and what you've learned in your experience? Yeah, well, first, let's just for a moment look back fondly on an era when Tom Brokaw was sitting in that seat and 95% of America believed that whatever he was saying was true back when we respected journalists and believed in the truth. And I think that that's apropos for what you're asking. We're fractured because we lack perspective. We're fractured because we don't agree on the world. We're always going to have different perspectives in the world, but there were always certain universal truths that we'd subscribe to. And and those seem to have been thrown out the window. These universal norms of respect and trust and these values that we all used to hold. And I think that's sad. When I look at the division today, I think that people on both sides lack perspective. They are failing to even try to see the world through other people's eyes. In my experience, since I've left high school, you know, I've been around the world literally and figuratively and have been fortunate, even fortunate through very, very bad circumstances to gain a perspective of the world that helps me to be empathetic and compassionate in situations. You know, I can look at both sides of the coin on some of these issues, whether it's social justice, whether it's LGBTQ issues, whether it's income inequality, And just kind of look at it and just say, how can I look at this as as an empathetic human being 
it's really hard to do that if you don't have perspective. It's really hard to do that. I wrote an op-ed that'll be published in the Dallas Morning News here in, I think, the next week. And it talks about perspective and how that service helps us to gain perspective and perspective helps us gain empathy. And one of the lines I said in there that's coming to the top of my head right now is it's really hard to be empathetic to a cause like Black Lives Matter. If, you know, the closest you've ever come to a young black man is drafting one onto your fantasy football team. It's just hard to sympathize with the movement, right? It's just hard, you know? And I was having a conversation internally with someone at Team Rubicon who we've been having this dialogue around issues, you know, of diversity and inclusion. And somebody approached me that was offended. This was a, a white man who was offended by the idea that he could be advantaged in any way compared to his mm. peers of color. You know, we had a great conversation. It was a very civil conversation. And, I, you know, what I said is, I would hope that your experience with Team Rubicon, where we've served alongside people of all colors, creeds, and religions, we have served in every community of color. You know, we serve in the poorest communities in America. And it really, it should lead you to open your eyes to issues that kind of cross all of these different boundaries. And he acknowledged that, but you know, it's tough. So when Tom Brokaw talks about the book, I guess to get to your question, I do hope that the stories of service that I talk about in there, where I deliberately try to show the world through the eyes of people in Team Rubicon and the survivors of these storms, both lends people perspective through these different experiences, but also leaves people inspired by what's possible when we come together and put aside our differences. I mean, we can take all we can get of that right now. And it seems like I really resonate with what you said about empathy. And it made me think of when you were talking about building a culture remotely, it feels like so much of this lack of empathy comes from a kind of national lack of culture because we're all even more isolated than ever. It just makes me think about the power of service, even from a distance to sort of break down those barriers and create some sense of national culture that even Tom Brokaw was kind of a figurehead of before. Like we had a sense of a national culture, even if we had really desperate ideas of the specifics, you know? Your point on perspective as well. I think I talk with people frequently. I'm like, it's like having one shared perspective. We used to have, you know, three to five newspapers everybody would read, agree Mm -hmm. on. You had Tom Brokaw on the news. And it's like, we talked about all the social media, all the technology changes and while I think there's a lot of good that comes from that, there's also the fact that whatever perspective or however evil your perspective, if you have a bad perspective, you're going to find others who are like that and think it's okay because there's a Facebook group for that. We're more segmented uh, in terms of what we believe and uh, it allows people not have one kind of standard truth that we're all going to. So it's interesting to see how much that I think has kind of driven people apart as well. Yeah. One of the maybe not so positive things about technology these days. Absolutely. It's allowed us to retreat into our corners like never before. And this is maybe related or maybe not. I think so much of sort of getting through this period right now is maintaining perspective. And that is often tied to daily habits, both professionally and personally. But in the past year or so, have you adopted any sort of belief or behavior or habit that has helped you weather these storms? Oh, man. It's a tough question. I would say I'd go to bed earlier. <laughs> it's interesting. I, while writing the book, I got in the habit of waking up around 4.30 each day and writing. I've got a two-year-old at home. So 
You got to find the only uh, time. Yeah, exactly. You got to find the non-crazy times in the household. So I'd get up at 4.30 and I'd write. And then eventually I finished the book, but I kept the habit of waking up at 4.30, you know, between 4.30 and 5. And it's good. I start the day usually by reading. I tend to read the New York Times and then I'll read, you know, a dozen articles or so, try to stay up on what's happening. And I dive right into work and, you know, I'll usually shut it down around 5 o'clock, 5.30 in the afternoon. But, you know, I found myself then for a while getting into this cycle because the news cycle was just insane. I'd stay up until midnight reading more news. And eventually I realized how toxic it was becoming because you'll find yourself reading the same story just from a dozen different outlets. <laughs> totally. There's it, it, yeah. no value add to your perspective. There's no value add to anything. And I realized it was actually draining me in, in unimaginable ways. So now I shut all that down and I'm in bed by 930 every night. So when David is texting me at 10 p.m., that's why I'm not responding. <laughs> and you're well, I'm getting up at 4.30 as well, so I'm with you. <laughs> good so, habit. You yeah, missed out a great on habit. the late night tweet storms, too. You're going to skip yeah. all of the... Uh, yeah, I get... I, I, and I avoid the Twitter rants. Yeah, <laughs> that alone is a reason to go to bed when the sun goes down. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure that the 24-hour news cycle is good for anybody. <laughs> I'm like, no, like not idea. sure that was a good shift. And maybe this is just stay off Twitter. But what advice do you have for staffing leaders as we head into, I assume we're going to make it to 2021. <laughs> so what advice do you have for staffing leaders as we head into the next year? Boy, there's a lot. And I'd hate to try to present myself like an expert in the staffing or the recruiting industry. But you know, there's a couple of things that I'm looking at as we head into the next year, which we anticipate to hopefully be another big year of growth for us. One, the talent pool just got five times larger. You know, we have 10% people unemployed and it cuts across all sectors, all levels. You know, you have just this greatly expanded pool of people who are seeking work. And again, it's kind of different, I think, than the Great Recession because this really cut across all elements of our economy. And so you've just, you're seeing a flood of these candidates. And, you know, in some ways that's already benefited us because we've been able to hire people that we never could have recruited before, either because we couldn't have afforded them or they wouldn't have ever shaken loose from their up and coming job in say the entertainment industry, but now they've pivoted into a nonprofit organization. So we've just tapped into an incredible talent pool. There is opportunity amid this madness and people should really be looking at that. Two, I think people, you know, this was already a trend, but I think it's going to accelerate. People are looking for purpose in their work. You know, I think a lot of people have been kind of hollowed out by 2020, both because of their experience with their employer and, you know, maybe they were ruthlessly cut, you know, as a cost savings measure early in the pandemic. Maybe they didn't have that experience, but nonetheless, they look at the world through a different lens now for having experienced 2020. So, this mm-hmm. notion of making sure that you're bringing purpose into people's work lives. And you don't have to be a nonprofit for that, right? I mean, corporations should have purpose-driven initiatives regardless of what their product or their service or their mission is. And we're going to have to contend from work from home. You know, there's already a drumbeat within Team Rubicon about should we ever go back into the office? And it's a resounding hell yes from me. But I know we're going to have a lot of people on the backside of this that are going to drag their feet. On the other hand, We've always had that corner of our staff who were always wondering why we had to come in the office. And some of those very same people now realize that the work from home environment is not as green as the pastures as they thought it was going to be. So so that's been pretty interesting. A lot of people have learned that. 
Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. I, you know, and I'll tell yeah. you, I'm a guy who I've loved every minute of it because, again, I have a two-year-old daughter. My wife's pregnant. And so I've got to share experiences and time with them that normally I'm traveling 200,000 miles a year and I haven't had to do that. And that's been great. Um, I realize my effectiveness as a CEO has dropped probably 30 to 40% as a result of working from home. <laughs> well, I, I believe it. A two-year-old is a powerful contender. <laughs> well, it's not even that. You know, it's not even that I'm distracted by my toddler. I'm an in-person leader. Like I have to be able to connect with people in a way that I haven't been able to. Serendipitous meetings are where I find myself most creative. So it's just, I just find myself ineffective in this environment. I don't see that as like a negative. It's just, I have to understand that and realize that. So it'll be interesting to see how self-aware people are on the backside of this about what opportunities they want to pursue, because I think they'll have more choices. I completely agree with you on one, the benefits and the downside of working from home. And I think people are seeing both and people with kids, it's been amazing and on Zooms where people are like, they're so excited about spending the time with kids. And then it's like, well, it's also hard to get work done now. The one thing I think people are going to come out of this with is the new perspective as we were talking about that. And I think a lot of people hopefully want more human connection. You kind of brought up purpose-driven work. And I remember when you started to Team Rubicon in 2010, and I remember kind of thinking like, what the hell is this? What is he doing? And it took me a couple of years to get that what you're doing is it's really amazing that you are helping give purpose back to people who when you're a veteran, you're serving your country and you're doing good. And like the idea that you kind of you know, leave that and maybe don't have, and I'm, I'm speaking out of turn, I'm not a veteran, I don't have that experience. But from my perspective, the ability to give people purpose again is something that is really an incredible thing. And I see that with Team Rubicon, where I've talked to a lot of people that volunteer for you. And it's amazing to see their eyes light up talking about, I don't know, do you call them tours missions that they yeah. go on? I mean, it is really, really incredible to see how excited people are to be part of your organization. And I think that goes back to one, your original mission and then the culture that you talk about. I just think it's a pretty incredible way built. Yeah, but I always caution people away from thinking you have to be a charity or, you know, do good. And that's, you know, like in the sense that Team Rubicon does in order to have that. I'll use an example. Like, David, you used to work for a temporary housing for houses. nurses, right? Houses. And that was probably just kind of a job, like, you know, nurses, okay, whatever, houses for nurses. I'll tell you what, people have a whole new appreciation for the nursing industry in 2020, right? These are heroes. They always have been heroes. That's been on full display in 2020. And so, you know, if you're that company and your job is housing nurses, particularly in this environment, and ensuring that they have a safe, comfortable, clean place to go home to after a grueling 12-hour shift in an ER fighting COVID, like, you should find purpose in that. And if you're not capitalizing on the opportunities to help people understand purpose, you could be in the education tech business. There's no more important job right now than ensuring our teachers can teach these little, you know what I want to call shitheads, <laughs> kids that are sitting around trying to learn on Zoom. Like, this is powerful stuff. So, you know, always find a way to, you know, what's the purpose of your company? You know, if it's just making money, it's going to be really hard. But most companies do more than just make money. To that point, we have the, you know, the software staffing referrals. One of our things that we've kind of gotten behind as a team is like we help find people find jobs and like finding yeah. a career that you love is a valuable thing. And I think almost every staffing firm could grab a hold of that as something that's like if you are putting somebody to work and you're getting them into a job that they care about where they're getting paid and they're happy about it, I feel like that's 
something that anybody in the staffing industry, I think, can feel good about the work they're doing because they're helping people make an income, make a living. Or on the flip side of that coin, you're helping a small or medium-sized business owner or entrepreneur achieve their dream by finding the right talent to scale their business. Yeah. I mean, that's the backbone of this entire economy. And to your point, says the companies that are closer to that purpose, that hold that purpose closer to the center of everything they do, are the companies that tend to succeed rather than people who see people as just transactions, you know, or numbers. I know listeners will want to reach out and support the work that you're doing at Team Rubicon, and we'll put a link to your donation page. But is there anything else that listeners can do to support the work that you guys are doing? Well, I mean, obviously, as a charity, we rely on philanthropy. So we'd certainly appreciate the support of anybody that's listening and is moved by the work that we're doing. I would also say that There are 20 million military veterans in this country dating back to World War II in Korea, which means that a lot of those people are in the job hunt. They're like any other citizen right now. Many of them are unemployed. So if you come across veterans and you look at their resume, whether you place them or not, and you think that they could benefit from Team Rubicon or that Team Rubicon could benefit from them, point them our way. We have 130,000 of them now, but we've got more problems mounting in front of us that we're going to have to tackle in the next decade than we can handle as it is. So we'd love to have more. And I'll give you the shameless plug since I've known you long enough, but I'm pretty excited about your damn book. Go out and buy his book. I pre-ordered mine. You should pre-order yours. Go to Amazon, Once a Warrior, How a Veteran Found a New Mission Closer to Home. Check it out. I'm excited to get my hands on a copy. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Thank you. Yeah, it's going to be good. I'm excited to see it finally get out in the world. It's an exciting time. It sounds like we need it right now. Thanks so much. Thank you, Jake, for joining us today. This was a a really fantastic conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to join. I'm excited for live events to start happening again so I can come to Staffing Hub live again and (laughs) drink some beers with all your listeners. Sounds like a good time. Just one year away. Well, let's hope. We'll all be together (laughs) again. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Jake. Good to see you. Thanks, Jake. Of course. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to The Staffing Show. Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter at staffinghub.com to never miss an episode. Until next time.